Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 18th, 2017, and this is episode... Uh, 2045 of the Survival Podcast, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects today, fishing. Specifically, fishing with something called a jug line. And I know for some of you, you're going to be like, I, I, I don't know if I want to listen to this because I already know it's illegal to do this where I live. I, I have some thoughts toward the beginning here as to why you might want to do that anyway, that as soon as we get through the housekeeping, we'll cover. But I will also say, just straight up front, that many of the things we'll talk about today uh, absolutely will translate to being used with either limb lines or trot lines. And a lot of places where jug fishing itself is illegal, either trot lining or limb lining or both are legal. I want to give you a disclaimer today that everything that I'm going to say about like what the legal requirements are um, will come back to this is for Texas. And you need to check your local and state laws and any sp specific state regional restrictions or time restrictions or anything. And anything you do, just because, like I say, it's jug fishing's legal, there's a lot of differences. In like, Texas, you can pretty much run as many jugs as you want. The limit is up to five hooks per jug. I like one. I'll tell you why when we get into it. Um, but that's pretty much the limit, right? You can run as many as you want to run as long as you follow all the rules and check them you know, every 24 hours, etc. In some states, you can run no more than five. In some states, you can leave your jugs and come back. In other states, while it's legal, you can't get out of so You have to be able to monitor your jugs the entire time. Uh, there's all types of, of, of regional restrictions and state regulations and stuff out play. But this really is a survival skill. This really is a survival skill. And I think that you can learn a lot from this show, even if it's not something you're probably going to go out and do tomorrow or if it's not legal in your state. And I'll even tell you how it might be legal in your state, even if it's illegal in your state. And that's a might, not a definite. But I'll tell you how you might be able to find ways to practice this skill set, even if your state says you're not allowed to do it in public waters. And that should clue you in right there. All right, so before we get into this today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasonings, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have one segment today from Southpaw Ben. It is called Disaster at Finninday. I think that's how you say it. Finin, Findine, Findine. Uh, contributed by Southpaw Ben this year as Tiberius has just lifted the ban on gladiatorial games, causing an exceptionally large crowd in Finninday's wooden amphitheater when it collapsed, wounding and killing somewhere between 20,000 and 50,000 of the 50,000 spectators present, Tiberius, who had been in Capri on vacation, rushed to Finninday to assist the victims. 
my take by Southpaw Bed. As a result of this disaster, the Roman Senate responded by banning anyone who had less than 400,000 centurses. The average legionnaire made about 900 centurses a year, which gives an idea of just how much that was, weren't legally allowed to host gladiatorial games. They also created building codes requiring a sound foundation, which would be inspected to ensure it met the requirements. They also banished Attilius, the man who had owned and constructed the amphitheater. However, the terms of this banishment have been lost to history and could range anywhere from being no longer allowed to host gladiatorial games to being completely banned from certain Roman territories. Um, I, I think this is an example of where like, you can see government doing something good. As much as I don't want to state, you can see government doing something good. Basic, basic building codes, specifically for commercial properties and commercial buildings where large numbers of people will gather together, make sense. Now, do I think that we need the state to do that? No. But it's one of those things that, like, well, if the state only did this little list of things, I would allow on that list and be pretty comfortable with a much freer society. However, I think building codes are great in these multi-tenant situations, these commercial buildings, etc. My problem with building codes is the way that they are now applied so aggressively toward individual structures. If I want to build a house, I am probably not going to build a house that's you know going to come down on top of my head. And what I think people will say is, well, then codes protect us from the builders doing a shitty job. Well, I think there's ways that private industry can cr create certifications for things like that that would probably be more reasonable than government and would actually be adaptable to the individual situation. But in the end, if you want to build a shack and live in it, I think you should be allowed to. I really do. It's, it's when you start you know, having hundreds of people or thousands of people in a building that I think even in a stateless society, there would be some level of recourse that people could take that would mandate that to protect yourself, you would have to have some level of private certification, inspection, etc. And that, this is one of those examples people when they say, well, we need government. Well, I think there are solutions to this, but it doesn't mean that government is wrong for doing it if government's going to exist. My take by Jack Spirico. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. Okay, so let's get into this main topic. I want to start out with kind of like some preamble, I guess you would call it. See, I grew up in my teen years, which is when I finally had total freedom to hunt and fish in Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, jug line fishing is illegal. In fact, many things are illegal in Pennsylvania that don't make sense, by the way. Uh, in any event, when you grow up where something is illegal you tend to have kind of a negative image of it. So growing up, I came to believe that jug fishing was akin to gill netting. 
which I'm pretty sure the folks at Pennsylvania Fish and Game actually do believe. When I moved to Texas, I saw jug fishing gear on the shelves at stores. And that kind of was unusual to me, so I started asking questions about it. I learned it was a very productive way to fish, but certainly not some indiscriminate method of killing millions of fish or fishing a lake to extinction, which is how it was made to sound in states that had made it illegal. The primary fish targeted, and you know, legal by the way, with jugs are catfish and rough fish. Rough fish include things like drum and carp and gar. Again, check your own regulations for what actually is a rough fish or a game fish. In most states where jugs are legal uh, gear, anything else must be released, and there are regulations about how often your jugs must be checked. Additionally, in most states, all jugs must be labeled with your name and contact information. Um, before engaging in any activity like this, again, my disclaimer, um, check your local and state regulations. Any specific law I mentioned on this podcast will be a Texas law, and you should not assume it applies to you. In fact, um, I'll give you an example of where even in states where jug fishing is legal, some bodies of water have specific regulations, such as size and bag limits that are different from state normal regulations. And this at times can apply to jug fishing. I know in some lakes in my area where jug fishing is legal, but it isn't legal in certain areas of the lakes. Or there's certain lakes where it's illegal because of what the lake is. So if a lake in Texas, for instance, lies completely within the, the grounds of a state park, Jug fishing is illegal. So if you have a lake where the park goes all the way around the lake and the lake itself is considered state park property, not there's a state park on the lake somewhere, then that lake is banned from jug fishing. doesn't apply to a lot of places, but it does in some areas. In fact, in Texas, there's a whole list of specific places, and some include certain branches of, of, of rivers that will say from this point to this point, it's not legal. So you need to check that. As best I can tell... At least 20 of our 50 states allow jug fishing in some way, shape, or form. That number might be higher because the list I found had states where it was known legal and known illegal, and there were probably another 20 states that they didn't have it actually, you know, spelled out as to whether. So there's another, you know, 10 to 20 states up for grabs in that list. And again, you got to check your own laws. Just some website says that it's legal in your state doesn't mean your state says it's legal in your state. Uh, most But not all of the southern states are states that allow it, and it's much more popular in the south and much more accepted in the south. But I saw states, I think like Massachusetts, uh, actually it's legal. So it's not only the south. Now, to be fair, since most of the fishing done with jug lines is for catfish, our catfish populations in the south grow and reproduce faster than in many northern states, and we have a lot more catfish. I also want to add something many people fail to realize. In many states, what is illegal on public land is totally legal on private land. Now, you do need to confirm this first. And what I mean by that is it's totally legal for you, if you're farming fish in your own pond, to drain the pond to harvest the fish. So I, I, I can't see how it'd be illegal for you to throw jug lines out on your own pond or your buddy's pond. Additionally, though, if you own or your buddy owns, let's say, 30 acres with a two-acre pond surrounded by woods, How often do you think you expect to be checked by a fish warden on said pond? And I would say probably never. Now, look, I'm not suggesting anyone do anything illegal. I am, though, pointing out that jug fishing is not like fishing in a barrel. It isn't magic. It is definitely a survival skill and one that may be needed someday. So if there's a way to learn it, you may wish to. Okay? Because it's not just like, well, if you can jug fish, you can catch thousands of fish. It doesn't work that way. Lastly... 
much as in about 90% of what I will cover today also would apply in some adaptation to trot lines and limb lines. And in many states where jugs are illegal, trot or limb lines or both are legal. Again, check your local and state regs before doing any of this, including things like how many hooks you can put out, how many sets you can put out, how long you can go in between checks. Like you got to find out all of this stuff and be responsible for yourself. There's no possible way I could know the regs in every state. And if I did a, a, a podcast explaining, well, in Georgia this and Alabama, you get bored real quick and turn that shit off. So I'm not even going to try. So let's start out with what is jug fishing as a basic thing. And it's simply a floating device with a line attached to it with hooks on that line with some sort of a bait. And when a fish grabs that bait, because that jug or flotation device floats but does have some give into it, If you can kind of think about it, if you take like your one hand lower than your other hand and imagine there's a line connecting them and kind of move out a little bit before it like starts pulling down on that, it's actually a really good hook setting technology. That kind of give in the buoyancy is really good at when a fish grabs that bait, moves away with it, just setting that hook deep in that fish's mouth, assuming the fish has actually taken and grabbed the bait. So that's, that's all that it is, is fishing with a flotation device. In general... You always have an anchor, okay? But not all jugs are anchored. You can actually break it down into two different styles of jug fishing. That would be your, you know, your two main styles, the only two that I know of, which would be anchored jugs and drifting jugs. Let's talk a little bit about how that works and, and why that matters as you're thinking about putting jugs together for your own use. Even with a drifting jug... In my opinion, you should be using some sort of an anchor. Now, the anchor might be uh, a two-ounce casting weight. Or it might be the same anchor that you use for a jug that you actually anchor to the ground. You just don't pay out enough line to hold it. Because your anchor, your, your anchor should not be able to submerge your jug, David. Okay? I'm just saying, right? If your anchor is so heavy that it can submerge your jug, you're doing it wrong. Okay? But generally speaking, when I'm doing um, a drifting line, I'll remove my heavy anchor, which I, what I tend to use are either half-pound decoy weights, which are pretty slick, or one-pound uh, dumbbells. And I have a lot of stuff for you guys in, in the show notes today. Link to Amazon so you can see it, pick it up, etc. I don't have dumbbells because there's no good price on a one-pound dumbbell on Amazon. It's just not a thing that's probably... Um, economical to ship in large numbers, okay? But if you have a local sporting goods store here, here and throughout the South, there's a store called Academy Sports and Outdoors. I think you can usually get a one pound cast, uh, one pound dumbbell weight, uh, for about two bucks. So that's, that's a really great weight to use. And again, when I tell you how to make the jugs, I'll tell you how you can quickly change out your anchors if you want to do drifting versus anchored. Anchored, the beauty of anchored is we, we find an area and we say, okay, there's eight feet of water there and that looks like good, good catfish habitat. We put that jug there and when we come back, fish hooked or not, that jug's going to be probably somewhere in the general area. Jugs occasionally do get lost, sometimes stolen, but in general, if a fish takes it, they're not taking it under and going away. It's just not happening. They're not going very far. Okay. Drifting jugs, we're going to use just enough weight because what we want to do is hold the bait down. Suppose we're using something like live bait, that you know, little perch can be swimming up at the surface, and we're not holding it down. What drifting is nice is if we have an area of pretty much a, a known depth, and we have some current or some wind flow, 
we can kind of just sit there in our boat and drift along with our jugs, and we cover more water that way. And that's why it's effective. And this is actually really effective in slow-moving rivers. And it's probably, in most instances, the best place for it. We can watch our lines. If one starts to get into a place that's going to get tied up or something, we can go back and get it. Some people will point out that they do drift fishing with no weight at all. That's fine if that's what you want to do. But again, I suggest something like a one-ounce or a two-ounce casting weight, and you watch your jugs, and if one gets hung up, you simply go retrieve it and move it and let it begin to drift again with its friends. And one of the things we can do with drifting is if we're drifting an area, and all of a sudden we start having all our jugs go and we pick up a bunch of fish, now we can take those lighter weights off, stick on a heavier weight, and anchor jugs in that area and stop drifting. So it's a good way to find fish. So they both have their places. I typically, when I jug fish, jug fish with an anchored jug because I don't fish a lot of moving bodies of water. So unless the wind is kind of at a perfect speed for drifting, it's not that easy to do. And in the lakes around here, there's so much friggin' recreational traffic uh, with water skiers and stuff like that. It's generally not the easiest thing to do, and it causes problems and things like that. Um, we also have very deep lakes, so... In, unless you get up in the really shallow top end of a lake away from the dam, it, it's not very practical. All right. So let's talk about the basics of a jug line. I'm going to go through the components that actually make up a jug line. Then I'm going to go back through and talk about how to construct it. So obviously the first thing we need is a jug. We need something that floats. The two most common things used are some sort of a bottle or a swim noodle. Now, I don't know exactly when Texas changed the regulation, but in Texas and in many states, um, at least in the past, it was required that your flotation device be white. And in Texas, it's still a requirement that if you are commercial fishing, and you can get a commercial fishing license, and you can fish with higher bag limits uh, for channel catfish and blue catfish in the state of Texas, you have to use an orange flotation device. And it used to be that all non-commercial had to be white. The new law is any color you want except orange unless you're commercial. That's the new law in Texas. If you want white, though, and I think white makes a lot of sense, they make white swim noodles. I have a link to where you can get them on Amazon. It's actually a really good price. I was kind of surprised at how good a price they were. Or you can use jugs. I, I, I would imagine the reason it started out with white is, one, white is highly visible, and two, milk jugs are pretty much white. Okay, But I've seen people use 2-liter soda bottles, 1-liter soda bottles. And a 1-liter soda bottle has enough buoyancy to work as an effective jug. Those soda bottles um, have a really good kind of lip on them down there at the neck where you can tie a line, and it holds really, really well. You remove the label. If it's a clear plastic and you want it to be white, or any other color for that matter, you take the lid off it, you pour some paint in it, you put the top back on it, and you shake it up. You open it up and let it sit and dry. And the paint will never wash off because it's on the inside. Now, crinkling and stuff, over time it'll wear off, but pretty much it'll stay there. But that's kind of that. And I would say the reason they started out with white for non-commercial is so many people used milk jugs, which were pretty much white to begin with. But now in Texas, anyway, you can be any color you want. I still like white. And I like white because it's really easy to see. You can see it from a long way off, even with my sorry-ass dead eyes. All right, so I think that's kind of your big choice between bottle and swim noodle. And I personally like swim noodles because they're very compact, and you know nine of them fit really great in a milk crate, perfectly with you know one pound anchors 
and enough uh, room to throw in some lighter weights if you want to have dr drifting capability or using decoy anchors. Okay, the main line. The main line is the line that runs from the jug to your anchor. It is not the thing that you attach a hook to. It is a main deployment line. I believe there is only one proper main deployment line for a jug fishing expedition, and that is tarred bank line. Tarred bank line, I know this sounds simple, but tarred bank line has freaking tar on it. And there's a whole shitload of people out there selling tarred bank line that doesn't have no tar on it at all. It's black. Just because it's black doesn't mean it has tar on it. Catahoula Manufacturing, CMI, is the only company that I know that you can still get real tarred bank line from. That's who I recommend you get it from. I personally like number 36 line. You can use any size you want. Uh, it's several hundred pound test, so you're, you're not going to catch a catfish bigger than that on a jug. So don't worry about it being strong enough. It's about the right size. It handles well. It rolls up well around a swim noodle or a bottle, so it's easy to store. All right. You're going to see when we talk about constructing them why I love swim noodles, and it's probably a different reason than any that you've ever heard from anybody else because I have a secret little trick um, that makes your life so easy. So tarred bank line is best, and personally, I think it's the only solution. Catahoula manufacturing, or it's not tarred bank line. And if you go to Walmart or something like that, and you buy something that says tarred bank line on it, unless they started carrying Catahoula again, you're going to be unhappy. You're going to get pissed off. You're going to get shit that frays. Tarred line, when you cut the end, it doesn't get all frayed up. And when you tie a knot in it, it freaking sticks and it stays. And when you tie a dropper loop in it that I'll talk about in a minute, it sticks and it stays. And it has some stiffness to it. So when you want line to offset off of your main line, it does that for you. Okay? So your main line. The next, the fishing line. I simply use heavy monofilament. I usually use 80-pound line. 80-pound line is generally overkill. I mean, I catch on jugs generally eating size channel and blue cats. So you're talking fish that are 14 inches to 24 inches, sometimes 30 inches. Big ones you're talking, you know, 40-pound catfish. 80-pound line is plenty for that, and that's a really big one, and one I might probably be letting go, okay? Um, but the reason I like to go heavy is we're back to nylon, uh, mono being stiff at 80 pounds. If you think a piece of 80-pound mono about, you know, let's say a foot long, 10 inches long, and you hold it on one end, it doesn't lay flat. It kind of stands out a little bit like a standoff. That's what we're looking for. We don't want it laying right up against that main line. We kind of want it sticking out to the side. I have seen people make standoffs using wire uh, leaders. I think that's a great idea, but I think it adds a lot of cost and complexity, and I've never had a problem using just standard mono line. I have a brand that I use that is really inexpensive, and considering it's you're overbuilding it, you know, you're not talking about trying to land a 12-pound pit fish on, on you know, six-pound gear. Um, you can go kind of cheap with your line and, and get exactly what you need. Then we need hooks. Uh, some people use octopus or circle hooks. I actually prefer uh, O'Shaughnessy-style hooks. Um, I like O'Shaughnessy hooks because they're simple, they work, and they hold really well. I don't believe they have the hookup percentage of like an octopus hook or a circle hook, but I do believe that they hold better, and partially because... They're made out of a fairly thick steel for their size. So once they get in, they don't come out well. They're also really easy to remove. 
when you know when you catch a fish on a jug line set, you're almost always going to hook it in the lip. You're not going to have fish swallowing the bait with this type of a set. They grab, they move away, and that tension in the line in the jug sets that hook perfectly. That's why it works so dad gone good. Um, so with a pair of needle nose pliers, they're easy to get out. And I'm going to tell you why it's probably not the way you would expect to be removing that hook when we're running these lines with, when I give you my method. Um, the next, and oh, by the way, I do have a circle hook that I recommend that if you want to use circle hooks, it's a thicker hook. It's Most circle hooks, if you look at them, they're a thinner uh, steel. These are a thicker steel, and they do, therefore, a better job of holding. I think circle hooks are great for fishing with rod and reel, and I think they work okay for jug lining. But overall, I have found that if you're not playing a fish and it's sitting on some kind of trot line or jug line or something like that, a straight J-hook with a thick steel and a big barb tends to do a better job of keeping fish on the line. Um, the next one is you need swivels. And specifically, snap swivels are what I'm going to recommend, which means one side has a snap that you can be removed and put back on, and the other side has a, a loop that you would tie a piece of line to. And I'm going to recommend that per hook you actually use two swivels. I'll explain how to put it together. But let me tell you what catfish do when they get hooked. They start rolling, and they roll, and they roll, and they roll. If you've ever seen video of like a crocodile or an alligator being captured and you see the way they roll, catfish do the same thing. If you do not use swivels and you go jug fishing, you will hate your life. Your shit will be completely wrecked, and the fish will probably eventually get away, or it will kill itself and it will be all wrapped up in line. Either way, your gear will be trashed, and you will hate your life. Don't skip it. Okay? The next thing you need is an anchor. And again, it should not be heavy enough to sink the jug. You can use a lot of different things. The cheapest way, because you usually find them for free, is find some bricks. And generally a half a brick, like a full-size you know, brick. And if you just take uh, a hammer and a chisel and score right at that center hole a couple times on both sides, and then just pick it up and drop it on another brick, it'll, it'll, it'll cut almost perfectly straight, right in half. Wild as crap, man. Just you get a good hard chisel, and you, you you find that center point on your brick, and you just make a line. Tap 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 tap. Get on the other side of the hole. Tap 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 tap. Flip it over. Do it again. Drop it on another brick. Bust right right on the line. And then you have usually two holes and a half hole, so you can have a perfect hole to tie your line to. Okay. I prefer to use one pound dumbbells because they store nicer with your jugs. Okay. But half brick. No problem. Another option is I found some half-pound um, decoy weights. I haven't used them yet, but I'm probably going to order some as I'm building out some jugs uh, for this year because they look really slick at how thin and long they are. And a half-pound is plenty of weight. One of the things to understand is your fish doesn't fight the weight. The fish fights the jug. And the buoyancy of that jug tires that fish out, and they ain't going that far. They're really not. Um, if you are getting a really big fish, you're better off going to larger jug than heavier weight. They just, I mean, you got to think about the way a fish works and its buoyancy. And yeah, it can pull a lot when you're pulling back. But when it's pulling again, think about it like trying to push somebody who's like a wet noodle, right? It's interesting that you use noodles for fishing, and I'm using noodles analogy. But where they just kind of go with you, and they just don't let you get any kind of thing to build up against, that's what trying to pull one of those floats is like. And the fish doesn't comprehend what's going on. It just knows that it can't go where it wants to. 
It's already near the bottom. It doesn't know to like try to swim to deeper water or whatever. And even if it does get into deeper water where it's capable of pulling the jug down, at some point it's going to get tired and the jug's going to resurface. So can a jug get up under a you know a dock or back into it? Yeah, but it's it, it doesn't happen that much. And it's really the case that that weight is actually easier to drag than that jug is to keep submerged. Because you have a direct response. It's like trying to carry the jug, pulling the jug under, controlling the jug when there's a hook in your mouth for a fish. It's a lot like you trying to carry a drunk person that's passed out. Versus carrying your buddy in a training drill when he's conscious and can keep his body rigid. That's like dragging the weight. Just as a way to think about it. Okay? Alright. So let's talk about the basics of constructing a jug line. One of the knots that I think everybody should learn that fishes is a knot called a dropper loop. Due to the nature of tarred bank line, you don't really need to tie a, a dropper loop. You could just like basically pinch a piece of line off and tie an overhand knot that leaves a loop in the line. Okay, But a dropper loop, it's hard to explain, but if you look it up, it's pretty easy to do. You kind of make a loop in the line. So you've got a loop in the line, you've got two pieces of line, Take some, the best easy way I know is take something small like a toothpick or a matchstick, put it between there, you spin it around about four or five times, and then you pull open the hole that's, that's being held open by that matchstick or toothpick and pull your loop through it and pull it, and it's like a cinch knot comes down from two sides. If you do that, you get a loop that stands perfectly straight out from your line when it's vertical. So that's one of the skill sets. So I'm going to start out with using swim noodles to con construct a jug that's a non-flagging jug line. That means it just sits there, and you can see it moving or bouncing around when a fish is pulling on it, but it doesn't do a stand-up thing for you to show you that there's a fish on it or that it's been hit. So with swim noodles, I generally cut my, new, my, my jugs 13 inches long. And the reason I do that is your average swim noodle that you'll buy in a you know, uh, pool store, online, whatever, is 52 inches long by 2.5 inches in diameter. And so that means that we're able to use a length of 13 inches, and each noodle gets us exactly four jugs. So that makes it pretty economical, considering that uh, I have a link to you for you today for a, a product called Oodles of Noodles, uh, and a four-pack of white swim noodles, 52 inches long, is 13.59. So that would make 16 floats for your jugs. And to me, 16 jug lines, that's a lot of jug lines to run. It's not too many unless it's illegal. But it's, it's about the limit of how many you really want to run at one time. Uh, if you run that many, it kind of you can set them all. You wait about 15 minutes, and by the time you start running, the running your line, the first one's been in the water for probably close to an hour. Maybe less if you get really good at the technique that I'm going to give you later in the show on how to run your line sets. So we take that white swim noodle, we cut it to 13 inches, we tie a piece of tarred bank line to it. And the easiest way to do this is just run the line straight through the hole in the noodle, bring it back around and tie it to itself so it's tied to one side of the, the noodle basically all the way through across the full 13 inches. Then we're going to run out, and you can pick any length you want, and if you fish in bodies of water where you'll never ever fish in 20 feet of water, or 25 feet of water, shorten it to the maximum depth you ever see yourself fishing in. Generally, I run my lines at about 25 feet, because even though I probably won't ever jug fish that deep, it gives me a little bit of fudge room, and if I end up having to cut some line off due to a snag or something, as long as most of it's still there, I can keep running it. 
So you, you run that line, again, out. And the easiest way to do this, you just mark a place like in your backyard or your front yard or whatever that's the distance you need the line to be. You set your noodle down, have somebody hold it, whatever, and run out the line you get to that and then cut it. Eh, easy. Then what you're going to do is tie your dropper loops. You can do whatever you want, but in my experience, you only need three. And again, I fish with one hook at a time. I'll explain why in a bit. But I generally tie a dropper loop at two feet, four feet, and six feet from the bottom. And then I'll attach, because it's easier to tie your dropper loops without anything on the bottom, and then attach a snap swivel to the bottom. This will make perfect sense as to why. So now I've got a piece of, of a 13-inch piece of noodle. I've got 20 to 25 foot of tarred bank line. I've got three loops in it at two foot, four foot, and six foot from the bottom, and I've got a snap swivel at the bottom. Okay? That's basically it. We've, we, we've got the jug line built at that point, and I'm going to save um, the leaders and everything else for um, basically how, how to run the lines, because it'll all be in there, and there's no sense in doing it twice. Let's start out, though, before I go forward, with why I recommend one hook, when a lot of people do two hooks, three hooks, four hooks, five hooks, etc., I recommend that because let's say you have a dropper loop at six foot and a dropper loop at two foot. That means you have four foot of line between you and the catfish when you've got a live hook out of the water but about a one foot piece of mono attached to it. And there's a real chance that it's going to get embedded in your wrist or your hand or the back of your hand or your arm with maybe a 12 pound fish pulling on the other end of it who's pretty pissed off about the whole situation. Now, If you're going to run more than one hook, I recommend that you run no more than two and you run them two feet apart. Because that way, when you get to where that other hook is, you're close enough that you can lift it up without getting that hook in your way and get that fish either into a net or into the boat. But the, the reality is, most of the time, your best production on catfish is going to be two foot off the bottom. Because you're... One foot piece of mono is going to kind of dangle down some, and it's going to put you in the 18-inch range. And that just happens to be a really solid spot when you're fishing for catfish. A foot to a foot and a half off the bottom. All right? So that's why I recommend that you do that, but you're free to do anything. Just if you are going to run multiple hooks, you have to use a lot of care when you're pulling those fish up because I've seen it happen to people, and it's not pretty. I saw a guy one time got a, a fairly large, I think it was like a four-odd hook between his two metatarsals, between like his pointer finger and his flippy-off finger on his right hand from the back side, um, right in between like those knuckles there, right in between those metatarsals, which is the, if you think about the back side of your hand. And uh, it, it didn't look fun at all, and it looked a lot less fun when I thought about him going to the, he ended up going, I think, like the ER to get it removed because it was so deeply embedded. In such a, you know, like there's nerves and shit in there. So I'm just saying, think about that if you're going to go multiple hooks. Uh, real quick, I'll stop here and say that I also do not recommend treble hooks for a variety of reasons that I'll get into when we talk about bait. Let's talk real quick about constructing what's called a flagging jug line. Now, I guess there's other things that you could use to make a jug flag with a, a bottle or something, but to me, 
the noodle is the way to go with this. What we want to do with this is we want to get a piece of one-inch PVC. And again, check your noodles because noodles may come in other sizes. I don't know, but most noodles have a one-inch center hole. And they actually shrink a little bit when they get wet. Okay, So we take a one-inch diameter piece of PVC pipe, about twice the length of the noodle, and we need two end caps and PVC cement. And we put the one-inch piece of PVC pipe into the noodle. We let it stick out about an inch on one end and the total length stick out the other end. We glue a cap on one side. We get a piece of rebar or something else heavy that will fit into a, um, a, a, a one-inch piece of PVC that's you know about two-thirds of the length of the noodle usually is what works good, but you can play with it before you seal it up and determine for yourself what works best. We put that inside the PVC pipe. Once we've, we've tested it and we know it flags right, we glue the cap on the other end. When we set that jug, we turn it so that the PVC runs all the way to the end that the noodle's on, and we have our line, our main line, attached to the PVC pipe at the bottom of the long protruding end. When a fish takes that, it rocks and it, it pulls down on it. That piece of rebar slides all the way to the end, and the weight tips it up. So the noodle stands up. And if you just go to YouTube and, 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 and type in flagging jug line, you'll see examples of this. Now, I've seen people make this really complicated. They drill a hole in the end cap. They insert an eye hook. They bolt it on. They seal it up with silicon, and then they close it back up so that it won't leak because we don't really want you know water inside there. You can do all that. The truth is, you can drill a damn hole through the pipe if you want to, because the, if that whole pipe fills up with water, it ain't going to leak. I mean, it ain't going to sink. Okay? It's not going to sink. It just isn't. Now, personally, this is what I do. I don't want to drill holes in the pipe. I don't want to create additional points of failure. I don't want to make a lot of nasty, rusty, leaky shit coming out of there from my rusted piece of rebar. So all I do is seal both ends and tie the tarred bank line around the end of the line and let the end cap that you've glued on prevent it from slipping off. And you don't have to worry about losing a fish that would slip it off and get away with it because you, you leave a long tail and you still run it through your, your uh, noodle just like if you weren't doing a, a jug line. So all we do is we run it through the noodle, we shove the pipe in there, and we can just tie a quick overhand knot on the bottom just so it'll pull down on that side. We can even do that on the fly with like a hitch knot. It, it's, it's not a big deal. And that means if we've already built non-flagging ones and we want to convert them, it's really easy. Okay? So that's how you do a flagging line. So now let's talk about Bait choices for catfish. All right. Um, here's what you have. You have basically, and I've broken out shad from cut bait for a reason. I'll explain as we go. The ones I've seen used most, prepared bait, which is like a stink bait, a putty bait, something like that. Shad, cut bait, and I don't consider shad cut bait because they're so much softer than most other cut bait, and they come off easier and a little harder to get alive, and they don't stay alive well and whatever. Uh, live bait, shrimp, and hot dogs have the ones I've seen mostly used for channel cats and blues. 
So prepared bait. <clears throat> I don't generally recommend prepared stink bait because it smells, it gets all over your hands. It doesn't work real well with the high-speed method of deployment and, and, and running of the jugs that I'm about to describe. Um, and I don't like treble hooks because they represent an additional danger to being hooked yourself when you're running a jug line. It's not like running a fishing rod. So just by their very nature, I don't really recommend prepared baits. I think there's better baits for jug lines. Shad. <clears throat> Shad's great. Catfish love it. The shad that you buy in little bags at like the store that's like dead and it's like in, like in some kind of vacuum seal pack and it's prepared. Somebody. That stuff's a lot heavier. It, it seems like they've done something to make it stick together and it stays on a hook better. I've never caught anything with that stuff, though. I've not used it a lot, so it might work, but I've never caught shit with it. So I'm not a fan of it. Cut bait. Cut bait's my favorite. Um, either you know various sunfish, uh, drum make good cut bait. Any fish that's not illegal to cut up in little chunks and put onto your hooks. I find that to be the best bait. Especially a scale fish, right? Because you're not going to use a catfish anyway. Um, but something like you know a bluegill. Because they have that skin and scale on them. They stay on the hook really good, and if you get smaller fish pecking at it, that lasts a lot longer before it's degraded and taken away. Next, live bait. Shad's fantastic if you can get live shad and keep them alive without killing them. They really are. Okay, And once they die, they'll still, catfish will happily eat a dead shad. Smells, heavy smell there, that's a great thing, etc. But, you know, it's still a very soft flesh, it comes apart very easily, Smaller fish pecking at it, it'll fall off the hook. When I look at live bait, I think very small, bluegill, perch, sunfish, call them what you want to, in the neighborhood of one to two inches is perfect. If you live in a state where jug fishing is legal, it's probably legal to either trap them or cast at them. So you can go a day in advance if you have an aerated well or something like that, keep those things alive, and hook them either from the like underneath the mouth, through the bottom of the chin, up through and out of nose hole, or through the back. Either way, and they're great. If there is an issue with them, since they're swimming around down there, they may be a little more likely to kind of get the line wrapped around it, but with swivels and all and a standoff, you should be okay. Because their instinct is going to be to go away from it, and when they die, they're still great bait. Okay? So, and they really stave off having small fish bother your line. A whole, you know, perch, even dead, even if it's not live bait, works really good. Shrimp. Catfish love shrimp. It is fantastic bait, but it does have susceptibility to being picked off by smaller fish, etc. It is a softer bait, but, but to tell you, catfish love shrimp. Hot dogs. I know it sounds stupid, but Oscar Mayer beef hot dogs are one of the best catfish baits I've ever seen in my life, from bullheads to channels. I've never caught a blue on them, though. So they're more of a channel cat bait. How about some other baits I didn't list real quick that I don't think are good baits? Chicken liver. See, chicken liver is a fantastic catfish bait for about five minutes. You take a piece of chicken liver, it's all bloody, it looks wonderful, you put it in the water, and in five minutes it's like a light gray color, it's completely bled out, it doesn't have much left going on. So I, I've never been a fan of chicken liver for that reason. Um, and it also is susceptible to being picked off, etc. Chicken gizzards, I've heard people talk about. I've tried it. I've never done good. It certainly is tough. It certainly stands up well, but I've not caught much with it. Uh, so those two are, are, are things that I'm not really all about. I will tell you that if you're using cut bait or even live bait, 
you know, a, some shad sanded spray that you can spray on. It's like a gel that coats. It's a really good uh, fish attractant and works really well. So let's talk about some primary jugging methods and some reasons we would do them. One is what you'd call, and there's only four that I can think of, long unmonitored sets. There's people that they, they go out in the evening, they set their jugs, and they go home for the night. They come check their jugs in the morning. A lot of states that allow jug fishing have up to 24 hours to check your jugs. The beauty of this is you can set out a bunch of jugs, and they work while you're drinking a beer at home. Or you're, you know, you're camping, you set them out at night, you go back to your campsite, you play the guitar around the campfire or whatever and go check them in the morning. I mean, there is, there is that. However, you're going to have a lot more fish that you do hook, might manage to get off. You're going to have things like turtles or you live in areas where there's things like alligators or gar eat the fish that are hung up on the line. And you do have a greater propensity for that fish to be able to drag that jug somewhere and not be able to find it or someone to come along and take it away. So I'm not a huge fan of long-duration unmonitored. Short-duration unmonitored, to me, is anything an hour or two or less. So when I used to fish Joe Pool Lake, for instance, I had nine jugs that fit in one milk crate, and I was mostly alone, so I was a little bit slower in setting up and deploying. When I, once I found a good place to deploy jugs, I would go out first thing, I would deploy my jugs, And then I would go out, let's say, in front of the buoys and run hell pet trolling for sand bass. And I'd do that for a little while, and then I'd go check my jugs. And if they were doing well, I'd get whatever fish I had. If they weren't, I'd pick them up, take them to another spot, deploy them, and maybe go bounce some slabs off of a, 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 a hump trying to get some sand bass. Or go into the harbor and fish for bluegill up in the harbor or something like that. And it would just kind of bounce back and forth. And now let me do two things at once. Very, very efficiently. And find those catfish. And if I found a really good spot, then I might just sit there and watch my jugs if nothing else was going on. Or I might spend a lot of time doing that, and then as it got later, when the sand bass really rolled in, then I would go ahead and maybe take my jugs up and go sand bass fishing if I didn't feel like going back out there before I left. Or leave them out there and, and go run them one last time before you leave the lake. It's all up to you. But that's kind of short. You can't really see them. Or if you can see them, you're not really watching them. They're over there. You can kind of sort of see them. You know, maybe they're a couple hundred yards away, but you're doing something else. In some states, those two things are illegal. Again, you got to check your local laws. Then we call what we call actively watch sets. It's actually one of my favorite things when the fish are biting to do or when you don't really want to work hard for your fish. You deploy your jugs and you kind of drift around, you know, maybe have a drink do some swimming, you're kind of watching your jugs, you start noticing activity, you see a couple of them flag, go ahead and run your sets. All right? Um, and that's great. And then drifting with your jugs, which we discussed at the beginning. It's exactly what it sounds like. We have free floating jugs drifting, uh, and we're kind of just drifting along with them, and we're kind of hunting that way, with, a, with just like drift fishing in a boat. Okay, so at this point, I know that you're going to tell me that I've only told you how to hang a piece of string off of the jug, and when do we get to like having hooks and stuff like that? So now that I'm actually ready to talk about setting the lines and running the lines, I'm going to give you what to do with that. What you do is you take your two your, your you take two barrel two two snap swivels, and you attach them to a piece of roughly 10 inch to 12 inch 80 pound monofilament. And the knot that I recommend you use for this is called a Palmer knot. 
I know a lot of people use the old style fishing knot with you know five twists and you run it back through and you cinch it down and all that stuff. Palmer knot is very easy and it's a very strong knot, especially in situations with heavier line or when you're attaching it to something with a thicker thing like a large snap swivel. You can Google it. It's dead simple. Basically, you, you, you fold your line over so it's in two, and you kind of pinch it so that the two pieces of line, you know, pinch will go through. You tie an overhand knot, and there's a hole there. You pull your hook or whatever it is, your snap swivel, through that hole, and you cinch it down. You cinch it down, and you trim off your excess off the short side. So you take an 80-pound piece of monofilament. We attach two snap swivels, one to each side. Okay? And we take our hook, and we open one snap swivel, put a hook on it straight on so you have a snap swivel touching the hook. Catfish are not trout. They're not line shy. They don't give a shit. They're not going to shy away from it. They'll go right up to it and grab it. And we take our other snap swivel, and we put it through the dropper loop for the height we want for our set. Okay? Now, this is the cool part. You tie up as, as many of these as you need, plus twice more, Or two and a half times more. So if you have nine jugs, right, you do at least 18, or you might do 22. So you have a few extras in case something goes wrong. You get another piece of swim noodle, and after they're tied up with the with the snap swivel on both ends, you put all your hooks on them. So they all have hooks. You take a hook, you put it in the end of the swim noodle, and you do that all the way around the swim noodle. And you let it hang down. You take a big rubber band, you know, a big flat rubber band, the green ones, and you put it around the other end of the swim noodle, and you tuck all of your free ends in a straight line there so you have all your leaders perfectly organized, and they won't get tangled up with hooks in them. Okay? And when we go deploy, and then the other thing you do is you tie a small piece of tarred bank line onto your leaders with a, with a loop in it, and remember, there's a, there's a snap swivel at the end of your main line. So when we're ready to deploy, we just take that snap swivel, put it through, it's now it's on the it's on the weight, and then we put our leader on and we throw it in the water. That's it. Okay? Now this is where people get confused. Well I'm in seven feet of water, I'm in eight feet of water, I'm in nine feet of water, I'm in twenty two feet of water, and I have to to, to like adjust no you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. When you make your jugs, you take and you wrap all your extra main line around your jug, just like you know, it's a hand fishing reel. And on there, to keep it like that, you take another one of those big green rubber bands, and you put it around there, and it holds that piece of line there. Now, there's no hooks on it. There's nothing to get tangled. It's all wound up. We go out. We slide the. We don't take the rubber band off. We just slide it off of the line. We pull enough out to put our weight on and our hook on. The guy that's deploying the jug, or if you're by yourself, you're doing yourself, you let the weight go, and you let the line peel off of the jug until it hits the bottom. You let an extra foot or two go out, you put the rubber band back over it. If the pit fish pulls more line out and the jug floats a little further away, it don't matter who gives a shit. And guess what? It doesn't happen anyway. And that way, that 25- or 20-foot piece of main line can let you fish in 6 feet of water, 12 feet of water, 18 feet of water, 4 feet of water. It doesn't matter. Drop down, put your rubber band over it, go on with your life. So, my method for using all that together is if we have nine jugs that are going out, we take nine of those hooks and leaders off of their little leader holder that we've made out of a piece of jug, 
a piece of you know swim noodle. We put bait on them all. If you're doing live bait, then you should deploy somewhere near your your either your your live bait well or you have a minnow bucket that you transfer them to and they sit right there. And that and then you put them on as you set your lines. Otherwise, if it's cut bait or anything like that, go ahead and bait up all all nine of your hooks. Now. You get one guy driving, one guy running the jug lines. He gets one jug line out, attaches the anchor, picks up one of the hooks that's sitting there, you know, in a bucket or just on the deck or whatever, attaches it to whatever drop or loop you're going to use. If you insist on using two hooks per line, you attach two of them. You get to a point where you want to deploy, you stop the boat, hit the reverse, whatever, a little bit to keep it in one place, drop the line over, let the line peel out, put the rubber band on, drop the, the freaking jug, move on to your next set. While the, while the guy driving the boat's moving to the next set, pull out another jug, attach another weight, right? Put another leader on. If you're using live bait, get the little sucker out and hook him. If you're using cut bait, it's already on there. Go to your next set, repeat. Do that until you have all your jugs deployed using that rubber band truck. Let the jug sit. When you're, you're like, okay, you know, we've been doing this for a while or we had a beer over in the cove or whatever it is, uh, we're going to go run our lines. What you do, go ahead and bait another nine hooks if you're running nine jugs. Just bait them up. Don't worry about whether bait's on your existing one or not. Go out. Pull up next to a jug. Slow the boat down so that the guy that's running the jug can get the jug. He reaches down grabs the jug. If there's a fish on it, you start fighting the fish. If there's no fish on it, you just start reeling up. You pull the rubber band back, start wrapping it around your jug. That way the line stays all nice and neat. It's never sprawled out all over your boat, tangled up in your feet. You're fighting a fish, you do the same thing. You just roll it up as you go. When you get up to where the bait is, if the bait looks good and you don't want to put new bait on, oh well, you just drop it back in and reset it, or you pull it in and you go to your next set. If the bait's stolen and you want to re-bait, you open the snap swivel on the, one, on the side that's holding the leader to the main line, You set that hook in a container that you have set for that purpose, and those little magnetic plates that you get at like Harbor Freight for holding nails and screws and shit, perfect for that. The hook will sit right in there. Take one of your fresh ones, put it on, drop it back in. If there's a fish on it, this is where it gets really great. If there's a fish on it, you pull it in, you undo the snap swivel, you leave the, fish in the, the hook in the fish's mouth, you take the leader and you put the fish in a cooler in your live well on the deck of your boat, wherever it is. You take a fresh bait, you put it on, you drop it back in, you redeploy it, you start heading to your next set. If you really want your hooks back fast, the guy that's running the jugs while you're heading to the next set takes a pair of needle-nose pliers, yanks that hook out of the catfish's mouth, puts it back in a little metal holder thing with the ones that had the bait stolen, put the catfish in the cooler or the live well, and then by then you're to the next set. You do it again. It doesn't matter whether you, you've lost your bait or you caught a fish. You simply replace the existing leader and hook with a new hook with leader and bait on it. Either way. You get all your hooks back from the fish that you caught. You go on and do your other stuff where you hang out. When you're ready to, to run them again, you rebait them again. And if you don't think you're going to have that much activity and you're running nine jugs, you might bait six lines. But unless there's still bait on there, it's much faster... To just take that hook off, lay it down, throw a new one on, and drop it. So much easier because you're dealing with all kinds of moving parts at that point. It gets to run like a machine. My son and I used to be good at this. I mean, we could, if there was no fish on the line, we were less than a minute a set in rebaiting or deploying for the first time. If there was a fish, unless it was a big one, two minutes. 
And that's because we're looking at it going, oh, that's cool, we got a fish, right? I mean, this is, and I've never seen anyone else actually run jugs this way. And you just keep doing that until you want to try a new spot or you're done. And that's very, very efficient. And if you think about it, it could be very profitable from just an acquiring a food standpoint. You, you build these jugs, you have about four to five bucks in them. Two catfish off of that jug, and that jug's profitable. Two, you know, eating size 16, 18-inch catfish and up. Because catfish is about $4.99 to $5.99 to $6 a pound, depending on where you get it. Right? So they quickly pay for themselves. And I don't know what it is in your state. Again, everything's back to my state. But Texas, um, we have a limit on channel and blue catfish of combined, uh, you know, both of them put together, count as the same toward your limit, of 25 And uh, they only have to be 12 inches long to keep them. And I never keep 12-inch catfish. Unless maybe I'm throwing a live well and pitch it in one of my ponds or something like that. Um, generally, I, I don't keep catfish until about 14 to 16 inches when there's enough fillet on there to make it worth doing. And we can, I think, keep five uh, flatheads or something like that, minimum of 18 inches. So if you got two people doing that, you got two limits, that's 50 catfish you can take home. And you're not going to do it every day, but, I mean, it gives you an idea that it, it, it is reasonable to go out and bring home 20, 30, 40 fish Uh, from a day of jug line fishing. And if they're bigger catfish, if you get into fish that are, you know, four, six, eight pounds, uh, you might bring home hundreds of dollars from one trip. So even with a boat ramp fee and putting some gas in your boat, it's, 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 it's pretty profitable. And, and I think it's, it, it's a lot of fun. I think a lot of people that have never done it just kind of think it's a boring way to fish. It's actually really an exciting way to fish. Every time you run that line, you don't know where you're going to get. It's also a great way to find fish. Because you can, you know, if you do nine jugs, let's say, you find like three spots and put three in each spot. And if you have three different uh, depths you're fishing at, you can do three different depths in three different spots. And if you come back and you've got fish at two and four feet in one spot, no fish anywhere else, you know what to do, don't you? Go get your other freaking jugs and bring them over here. It also kind of reinforces, like when you want to go out and rod and reel fish, if you have an area you've done really well jug fishing over and over and over again, Well, that's a good place to go rod and reel fishing. And there's another thing about it, too. Catfish are not line shy, but they can be quite boat shy. So when you're in shallower water and that water's got a little bit of chopping it and that boat's doing a little bit of slapping, they'll tend to not bite. So a lot of times you can fish the same place with like a bobber, slip bobber, or something like that, fish the same depth, the same bait with rod and reel and don't catch anything. You throw that jug out there and you catch catfish couple other rules. You go back to your jugs and you've got catfish on them, but they're all like 8-inch dinks, go somewhere else. Move a little deeper. Maybe the same spot. Just go out a little bit. Use your depth finder. And by the way, if you're using a John boat without a depth finder, you have a depth finder. It's called your jug. You lower that line down a foot at a time. Six, seven. That's seven foot. I'm catching dinks at seven foot. Let's move out a little bit until I'm about two foot deep. I'm at nine foot. If you're catching a bunch of catfish that are 8 inches, there's a whole bunch of 8-inch catfish in there, and they don't generally hang out with 24-inch catfish. They're scared. That doesn't mean bigger ones won't move in later, but they're not there now. I want to finish up with a little bit about why I love this as a sport. And I want to say that I think this is a sport. I think a lot of people, again, they think it's like because they might have heard that it's illegal or it's too easy or whatever. I know a lot of people that go out and put a lot of jugs down and don't catch jack diddly shit. It takes a certain amount of being able to identify where the good spots are, to be intelligent about where you're going to move and when you're going to run them. 
and to know, like, something I just said. You're catching a bunch of small fish, move. You're, you're, you're coming back and all your bait's gone. Let me tell you something. If you have a, a chunk of bait about an inch to two inches in size and a 16-inch channel cat comes by, he doesn't peck at it. He eats it. So if you are getting cleaned off, move. You know, patterning times of day and understanding seasons and all of the other things that go with fishing. It applies to jug fishing as well. It's just a, maybe a more laid-back way of doing things, and that's what I love about it. I love that it frees you up, that you can actually say, well, you know what? It's a great time to troll for stripers or hybrids or, or white bass. So rather than do that and exclude other things, we can put those jugs out. It's great when we're fishing a new lake that we don't really know very well yet because we can deploy those jugs and we can go look for spots and we can look for other fish activity. And if we fail, we come back to those jugs. Maybe we have fish. If we don't have fish there, we move them. And sooner or later, just by the law of numbers and probability, we're going to find a place that's going to work. And what we need to do when we find that place, and this is why I'm excited about learning Eagle Mountain Lake. This is what I did at Joe Pool. You need to take notes. You need to take notes of the date and the time, the bait and the fish size and the GPS locations. Or if you don't use a GPS, and I think you should, because you can get um, a Navionics app for your iPhone for like nine bucks. That is awesome. It really is, let alone a, a better you know, set of electronics. But you get that, and you know, you have that information, and if they, you stop catching them there this year, well, you know as you're coming up to that time, maybe even a couple weeks in advance, a couple months in advance, to start trying it again. And over a year or two, this will really teach you a lake and the pattern the fish are moving in, and it will make you better not just at jug fishing, but in fishing that lake in general. Another reason I love it, it's, I've already covered it, but it's profitable. It is the most profitable method of fish, uh, freshwater fishing I know of in, in the states where it's legal, especially to do with a, you know, a significant number, 12, 9, 12, 16 jugs. I mean, you really can put a lot of fish in the boat. I know a couple uh, that I used to fish with on pool. They go out to Lake Tawakany and they jug fish. They only run four jugs. They run, and they run milk jugs. They look for 12, they go 12 feet of water offshore. And they find it wherever they can find it. They put out one hook with a big piece of cut bait on it. And if they ain't catching fish, they move them. That's pretty much all they do. These people are big time white bass fishermen, bigger than me, love stripers and hybrids and stuff. Lots of that on Tawakany. But when they're on Tawakany, they don't even care. They don't even work for it. They just go out there to drive around and enjoy the lake. And I've met them out there fishing with a guide a couple times, and both times I met them, they had blue cats that were like 30-pound blue cats, like two or three of them. That is a lot of pieces of fish. That is a, you know, even when you look at you're probably on a 30-pound blue cat, you're going to get about 15, 16 pounds of, of actual fish, you know, skinless, boneless fillets off it. That's a lot. I mean, Dorothy and I sit down to a meal, and we use catfish to make tacos, or we, you know, fry it or grill it or whatever. I mean, a pound is enough for both of us. Easy. There's always some leftovers when we do a full pound, and that means if you get 15 off of that, that's 15 meals. So, so I, I do think it's also a profitable form of fishing, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, in the end, that's what it comes down to. It's a lot of fun, and it gives you a lot of freedom to do other things while the jugs are doing the work. It's like trapping fish. 
right? But it's not like trap and fish where you put a big just trap down or something like that. It's like trap and fish from a standpoint of like trapping fur-bearing animals. And I guess growing up, running a trap line in high school to buy stuff and save money for cars and other things like that, um, it might be why it appeals to me. Because each set is different. Where with a fish trap, yeah, we bait it up, we stick it in the water. If there's fish there, they go inside, we catch them. Right? If they're not, they don't you move it somewhere else. But when you, you don't put out 20 fish traps. But when you run a trap line like for coon and fox and things like that, each set is different. You have to think about it. Where would they be coming from? How would they pass through this area? You know, what, what do they relate to? Is there a creek here? How is the raccoon going to relate to this creek? Where are the trails? So when we do jug fishing, we're doing the same type of thing. Like, okay, here's a cove. Great. Is there a, is there a channel in this cove from a creek that runs into it from the back? Where's that channel? How deep is it? If it's real, like six, eight foot deep and the rest of the cove is about four foot deep, man, dropping right in that channel, that's probably going to be like a catfish highway. Or maybe right at the, where, that, where that creek enters that cove. We might want to set there. And by, you know, here's some structure. Here's a hump. That's a pretty deep cove. Water's about 14 feet deep. And this spot right here is eight foot, but it's not eight foot and it's just become eight foot. There's a, something creating a hump there up to eight foot and it drops back down on all sides. Well, on top of that hump and to the sides of that hump, we want to try that. And it doesn't mean any one of them will work, but any one of them could work. And you start to realize it's not like this guarantee. Again, it's not like fishing a barrel, which I think some people think it is. It is this hit or miss and then zoning in. Okay, now we know. Caught a couple fish at this depth in this area. Let's concentrate our jugs in this area. And all of a sudden, yeah, we can catch a bunch of fish. And then sometimes you think, man, we're going to leave with a huge bunch of fish today. Fart in the wind, they're gone. They've moved somewhere else, and now you have to find them again. So to me, that's very sporting. And I, again, I think it's a lot of fun. Anyway, I want to remind you that I have links to almost all of the stuff you would need to be able to do this. Um, of course, every Monday I do a Q&A show. If you, and I'm going to give priority this Monday. If you listen to this show and you're not quite sure what I'm talking about with something, send me an email with TSPC Catfish in the subject line. And ask me the question, and I will work it into like a Q&A segment for this show if it's necessary Monday uh, next week in the Q&A show. And I really encourage you, if it's legal where you are, you can find a way to make it legal where you are, get out and give this a try. And uh, you can do it really simple at first. Again, you get some two-liter soda bottles and some tarred bank line and a rock. And I still recommend doing the dropper loops and the leaders with some snap swivels. And you swivels, you'll hate your life. And you can color, color that bottle so that you can find it with some paint, shake it up, and you, and you can do it for that. You can do it for stuff that you got lying around the house. And give it a shot, see how it works. I do want to give you one little kind of pro tip here at the end. One of the items I didn't mention, but I do have linked in the show notes today, is some waterproof reflective tape. Even if they're white, even if you think you're going to see them, one loop of protective tape around that, and you shine a spotlight on that, and you can see it from a mile away. So putting a couple loops of protective tape around your jugs is probably a good additional thing. And then the last thing, a gear tag. You do, in, in, I believe in all states, but it definitely in Texas, have to have a tag. That tag has to have your name, your phone number, and your address on it, okay? Uh, so that they can, if you leave something out there for like a week and they find it and there's an animal dead out there because you didn't check your shit, you're responsible for it. Or if it's been out there for a couple weeks and it's wrapped up around somebody's prop because you left it there, things like that. That's why they have that, that law. 
the other thing you usually, you have to do here in Texas, you have to put a date on it. And that date's good for 10 days, and it has to have a new date put on it. The way I generally handle that is I just use white swim noodles. I wrap some white um, duct tape around them, and I write my information on there. And I'll, I, I, and I'll just put another piece of duct tape wrapped all around onto itself so it doesn't come off. I'll put the date on there. And that way I don't have to worry about rubbing it off. Or whatever. Just take that piece of tape off, throw it away, put a new piece on. What I'm thinking about doing this year, I found websites where you can get basically dog tags, like military dog style dog tags with anything you want printed on them for about a dollar a piece. You know, get 20, 25 of those printed up, and that's a permanent tag, and then you can just add the date. By the letter of the law, um, and you might want to check with your local game board and stuff like that, the date is supposed to be on the same tag that the information's on. I talked to two different fish wardens around here, and by the way, I've never been checked by a fish warden in the state of Texas yet. But I talked to two different ones. I said, if I had a tag, a metal tag with all my contact info, And on the jug itself, the date was there separately. Would you cite me for that? And both of them were like, hell no. I mean, so, you know, you want to make sure that you don't have, you know, Poindexter types that are going by letter of the law. But those are just some final thoughts on that. And, boy, I can't tell you, if you're going to do this at night, and that's a great time, evening into tonight, how valuable that little bit of reflective tape is, especially on your flagging jugs. If you're using flagging jugs, put a piece of reflective tape around what will be the top And you can sit there and shine your light from shore if you're camping or something like that. And you can just watch them pop up. And usually when, if I see like flagging jugs, and I haven't made flagging jugs in a while. I need to make some. I may do a video on it if I do. If I see like one pop up, I usually wait a little bit. See if a couple more pop up so we can make the most efficiency out of that run. Anyway, hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope you do give this a try in the future. And uh, if you want to learn more about it, again, there's tons of content on YouTube. Uh, people building the equipment and actually going out and doing the fishing. But what I have yet to see is anybody that's you know systematized the, the run method with the leaders and the swapping out the way that I have. And trust me, guys, it works really well. Oh, last pro tip. I almost forgot this. So when you, you take all your stuff home, those hooks are going to rust on you no matter what you buy, no matter how good they are. Fish hooks rust in time. But since they're on a snap swivel, you can basically take all your hooks off and set your leaders aside, put them in a Ziploc bag or something until you're done with this, put them in a little cup, and dump something on them like cod liver oil, which will be, if anything, a fish attractive, certainly not a fish repellent. You can even keep a jar with some cod liver oil in it, throw your hooks in there, give it a shake, use a magnet to get them all out, set them on a paper towel, let it take the excess up, put them back on your, uh, your leaders, put them back on your noodle leader management tool, and you'll have fish hooks you know, that last as long as they could ever be hope to last because that'll prevent that rusting from getting excessive and getting too much of a rust coating uh, on your hooks and things like that. So now I've caught a lot of fish on rusty hooks, so I don't get too upset about that. But that's just a new little thing I came up with brainstorming this show. Anyway, with that, we have today's show wrapped up. I have some final segments for you here, though. First up, um, the YouTube channel that I have for you today is called InRange TV. Uh, these guys have been around quite a while. They have about 100,000 subscribers. Uh, the, the suggestion was sent to me by Andrew. He said, I want to recommend to you InRange TV, the Thinking Gun Nerds channel. You know Ian McCollum, him and his buddy uh, Carl Casada collaborating on different kinds of things. What would Eugene Stoner do if he decided to design the AR-15 today? 
to what if the U.S. Army had adopted the 1860 Henry, the first assault rifle. Probably the most famous video of theirs is the AKAR mud test that totally defied conventional wisdom and was used in Russian and Ukrainian propaganda, but they switched the results to make the Russian look good uh, worse, respectively. Thanks for the show, Andrew. So, yeah, I actually have this um, on my uh, my subscribing my subscribe channels list, and I've had them on there for a long time. Ian is a good friend of the show. Um, he has, has a YouTube channel also called Forgotten Weapons. He does that full-time. He's uh, one of the members out of this audience that took the stuff that I talk about and went out and created a life for himself. He was, I think he was the first person ever to do it using YouTube. Humble Mechanic came along, did a great job. Some other people have. But I think Ian walked away from his main job about five or six years ago, uh, primarily with uh, YouTube as his primary source of income. Now, on, I, I don't know how this has affected the you know, YouTube demonetization or whatever has affected that, but InRange TV has basically demonetized all their videos due to the YouTube bullshit about sponsors and advertisements and stuff like that. They have a uh, video about that. But you might want to check out InRange TV. A lot of cool stuff there. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for... Uh, for that suggestion. And again, Ian, one of the two creators on that channel, is a very good friend and direct member of the Survival Podcast. We've actually been on the air with us before. Uh, next up, I want to talk to you about the Amazon item of the day. As I mentioned, there are a whole links, tons of links in today's show to Amazon uh, where you can go and uh, get all the products that we talked about, the hooks, the line, all that stuff. But also review an, an item every day on Amazon. Today is a product called Sweet Drops Liquid Stevia. To me, this is kind of the best bang for your buck in stevia. It's not flavored. It doesn't taste like vanilla, which I think vanilla stevia tends to taste like ass. Um, it is just a sweetener. It is, to me, it's kind of the right balance. Some stevia is so sweet, you use even one drop, you're like, oh, my God, that's too sweet. Um, and I, I, I am a big proponent of stevia and making your own drinks and things like that. Uh, I have, for instance, in my review on this today, a link to uh, a strawberry limeade that I make. Kids love it. It's very low in carbohydrate. It's only, there's no real sugar other than the sugar that's in the limes, which is low to begin with. Uh, it tastes great, and you can sweeten it to your taste with stevia. And, and I mean, I, I kind of want to explain some things to you about why this is important as a survival topic, uh, something like stevia. Um, here's a simple low-end breakdown of the amount of sugar people consume without even thinking about it. Say you drink four cups of coffee or tea a day with one teaspoon of sugar per cup. And four soft drinks are similar at 12 ounces each a day, like a Coke. We will go low and say those have about two teaspoons of sugar per drink. Well, that's 12 teaspoons a day, 84 teaspoons a week. That's almost 310 carbohydrates a week in pure sugar form, jacking up your insulin resistance. From a purely caloric standpoint, that's 1,344 calories. And if you're on a diet of about 1,500 to 2,000 calories a day, that's almost an extra day of eating per week, 52 times a year. So per year, it's 50 days of additional eating. And this is if the sugar is your only vice and you only consume it in drinks. And here we're talking about uh, self-sweetened ones. Look at what happens when we say two, four Cokes a day, right? We toss out the tea. One Coke has 39 carbohydrates. Times four is 156 times seven, or 1,092 grams of carbohydrate a week. Cut that in half down to two a day, and you're now at 546 carbohydrates a week. Can you even begin to know what that does to your insulin resistance? Calorically, two Cokes a day is almost 2,000 calories a week. If we go back to four a day, 8,000. 
that adds up to four full days of eating every week with no nutrition value at all. And if you're thinking, I don't do that, what about your kids? Kids seem to be able to eat this crap, and they can do it all the way into adulthood, sometimes not even being fat, but they become addicted to the sugar, and eventually it catches up with them. I believe cutting sugar down in your diet is one of the number one things you can do for your health. It's one of the things that's killing America. And stevia, whether you get the one I recommend or not, is something that can help with that. And again, whenever you want to shop online, if you go to tspaz.com first, Check out my Amazon reviews and stuff like that, and do your online shopping through T-Spaz. You support the show no matter what you buy. You can check it out again at tspaz.com. Next up, Song of the Day. Man, I, I really like this one. This song is by one of my favorite, and I believe one of the most underrated bands in history. It's from the 70s and early 80s. ELO, also known as Electric Light Orchestra. Um, this song is called The Way Life's Meant to Be, and... With ELO already being underrated as a band, this song is extensively underrated. Th this song is really about how we lose what makes a place special through what we call progress. Give you a few of the lyrics. Well, I came a long way to be here today, and I left you so long ago on this avenue. And here I stand in the strangest land, not knowing what to say or do. As I gaze around at these strangers in town, I guess the only stranger is me. And I wonder, yes, I wonder, yes, I wonder, oh, I wonder, is this the way life's meant to be? Although it's only a day since I was taken away and left standing here looking in wonder, it's your life, it's your life, ah, oh, the ground at my feet. Maybe it's just the old street, but everything I know lies under. And when I see what they've done to this place that was home, Shame is all that I feel. Oh, I wonder. Oh, I wonder. Is this the way life's meant to be? So, I mean, you can kind of get that. Anybody that came from a small town or something like that, that got really developed while they were away, and they went home and things weren't the way that you left them, you get that. And I think we've had that happen all over this country, both with overdevelopment and things being torn down and falling apart, both directions. It seems like things just can't stay the way that they are. And... This is, to me, the most profound line in this song. And I always thought it was profound, but today in 2017, it seems more profound. Here you go. As I wander around this wreck of a town, where people never speak aloud, with its ivory towers and its plastic flowers, I wish I was back in 1981. Now, when I said that, you probably thought, well, Jackson, these guys are around the 60s and 70s, or 70s and 80s. You know, if you don't know them, I think they like around in the in the 90s or something, and then this is one of their later songs or whatever, or, you know, even like 2000. No, I wish I was back in 1981. This song was was actually recorded in 1981. It was released in 82, but it was recorded and set for release in 1981. This song's a prophecy. 81 was a simpler time. Those of you that were kids in the 80s, you know what I'm talking about. I want you to listen to this song, and the words in it, and the meaning behind it, and I want you to think about the fact that it is, is, it is as though it was released today, but it was actually composed in 81, and it's hearkening back to what it was like in, in the early 80s, from being a simpler time where you knew people in town and things like that. I think it'll make it more profound. I think this is like one of those songs, because of that, It is artistic elegance in that this song actually will become more profound over time. 
With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that, that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, I came a long way to be here today And I left you so long on this avenue And here I stand in the strangest land Not knowing what to say or do As I gaze around at these strangers in town I guess the only stranger is me And I wonder, yes I wonder Is this the way life's meant to be? Shower.